This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, I'm Elise Lunen, Chief Content Officer over here at Goop and co-host with GP of the Goop podcast. My guest today is the very cool David de Rothschild, I think you're going to like hearing about his wild adventures. Before we get to David, though, I want to give a shout out to our friends at Swarovski who are bringing you today's episode. We did a really fun editorial piece with Swarovski a few weeks ago. It revolved around their new Mother's Day collection. We featured a few first-time moms for the story and shared some favorite pieces from the new Swarovski collection. The collection itself includes stackable ring sets, oversized studs, and a pendant necklace in the shape of a bursting sun. And yes, there is just as much sparkle everywhere as you'd want from Swarovski. To check out their Mother's Day collection, visit a local Swarovski store or head to Swarovski.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. David de Rothschild is an adventurer and an environmentalist. He once set sail across the Pacific from San Francisco to Sydney, riding on a 60-foot catamaran. It was built from thousands of reclaimed plastic bottles and a unique recyclable technology. David has visited some of the most remote and vulnerable regions of the world to shift our awareness to critical environmental issues, and more impressively, has put into action some very creative solutions to tackle these issues and allow us all to get involved. His story is both inspiring and practical, and very relevant. We've engineered ourselves into a mess where we basically say that a company is not successful unless it is quarterly growth and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. I've never seen anything do that in nature. Just keep mm-hmm. on growing and growing and growing. Something has to give. 
So we have to change companies and the way that we view companies and the way that they are responsible in their own ecosystem and move them from being a company back to a community. Let's get to my chat with David. So David, thank you for being here. And I know you're an entrepreneur. I know you're primarily an activist. And I know you've sailed around on a ship of plastic. Correct. Pla- is it plastiki? Plastiki. Definitely, um, I would say activist before. Entrepreneur. <laughs> entrepreneur. I know, we were just discussing. Maybe an entrepreneur or activist. Yeah. I, that, that's, I like that. I'm yeah. going to keep that. <laughs> I'm trying to uh, activize. Is that, can you do that? Can you? Yeah, I think that there I, needs I'm, to I'm be. A- I'm activizing. You're activizing. I think that there there is, and I and I don't know if it's happening in London, but I do feel like the millennials expect a certain amount of transparency and social responsibility in any business that they support. Yeah, but where were they in the last election? I know. What did they? What, what all these all these millennial activists who didn't couldn't be bothered to turn up because they were playing Fortnite or something? I probably probably right. I just learned of the existence of Fortnite. Welcome. I know. I hear I have a you, lot to look forward to. I have little well, kids. You just do not want to get involved. In Fortnite? No. Are, do you play Fortnite? I've, you know, I've played a little bit. I've, <laughs> I'm a Fortnite dabbler, and I realized that after playing for two hours and not getting anywhere, that basically I was just fodder for others, and I would have to spend at least 12 hours a day. And then I started thinking, well, if I was spending 12 hours a day just playing this game, what would the output be? And I realized it would be nothing. And then I got really <laughs> depressed. And I thought, I wish I was 19 and didn't care so much. I know. So I sort of gave up. But then I see my nephew playing. And he's super excited about it because he's nine years old. And everything's amazing at that point. And ever, they wanted, I guess, a break from Minecraft. Something like that. Which apparently. seems more productive. Yeah. All right. So when you were a teenager, I'm assuming you were voting. But totally wh- <laughs> where did you, how did you get involved with environmental protection and global warming? And where did that come from? And how did it start? I think my story sort of, for me, this sort of story of environmentalism has always just been one of just being curious, mm-hmm. you know, and looking at the world differently. And I, I grew up in the countryside. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a sort of, I would say, completely idyllic environment where there was... You'd run out and grab eggs from the chickens and there was milk from cows every day and you'd go down and grab the milk and, you know, living on a farm and if you were, you know, leaving your room, you just turned the light off or if you were hot, you opened the window. If you were cold, you put a jumper on and it's just a very sort of, it was just, that's what you did. You reused stuff, you didn't throw things away and, and it was just sort of habitual. It mm-hmm. wasn't a thing. And I think because of that, being outside of nature, I always felt more comfortable being in nature so then you kind of shuffle into the city and everything's a bit more manic and a bit more disposable and you start to see these things and you're like, wow, why, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't think I consciously sort of ever thought about being an environmentalist or an ecologist or an activist in that way. I mean, I just sort of have continued to remain curious. And I think it's one of those things that as we grow older, curiosity is taught out of us, ironically. It's the, the essence of childhood is curiosity. And then you get into a school system or you get into a workplace and you're sort of told to conform and mm-hmm. to be remolded into what everyone else should be. You know, you're just like, this is what you should be. You're going to be a product of this machine. And then all of a sudden, you know, the ego kicks in and you're like, well, I'm too smart to ask a question. <laughs> I should mm-hmm. know everything. And if I ask a question, people might think I'm stupid or don't know. And so it's kind of frowned upon. And I think that is 
one of the greatest losses is the fact that we let curiosity sort of slip out of our mm -hmm. fingertips. And so for me, just being curious around the world and the way we can live with inside of this web of life has always been a fascination. Mm -hmm. And when you start to dig into the natural world, it's full of these incredible wonders. And I, I just sort of think that basically, I look at it and I go, nature's a magician, you know, and who doesn't love magic? So, mm -hmm. you know, we all love magic, even if it's shit magic. You know what I mean? If someone does a trick <laughs> for a minute, you can kind of, if you can suspend your sort of cynicism for one second and just allow yourself to be in the moment and see that magic occur, it kind of resets you to that childlike state of curiosity mm -hmm. that we all have inside of us that we lose as we get older. And so for me, environmentalism or activism is just about curiosity and asking questions then starts this process because you can start to challenge the way we've done things and you can start to unpick it or unlearn. That's another thing. You know, we're always told, you know, go to school, learn, take on information. You know, that will serve you for life. There you go. Big injection of information in your first 25 years of life and off you go. But no one teaches you to unlearn mm -hmm. because the world is changing faster than we're learning and the way that we're learning is outdated and we're sort of living with this outdated brain model. So we're looking at the world through lenses that don't necessarily exist mm -hmm. for, for the problems that we face today. That's why I think we find it so fundamentally hard to activate ourselves to deal with problems because we just... We can't relate. So in other words, we're more, you know, if you spend time in California and you're a Brit, you pretend that you can surf, you walk down the beach with a board <laughs> and you like have this whole look and then you get in the water and you miss everything. But, you know, whenever you get in the water, there's always that first moment of like, oh, I'm in the water. And just the primal kind of fear of maybe getting eaten by something comes along. I mean, I do blame Jaws for that, but <laughs> there's that primal, primal fear, right? Our receptor in our brain goes, okay, you're in somewhere outside of your comfort zone. And, and so we're afraid of that. But you're more likely to die of a vending machine falling on your head than you are of being eaten by a shark. Or you're more likely to die of a mosquito bite or a car crash or many, many other things. I mean, it's a tiny amount. So we're more afraid of losing uh, or being eaten by a shark than we are losing the species. You know, we're more afraid of that, even though statistically it's completely whack. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get eaten by a shark. So our brain is just outdated. We look at sharks and go, they're going to eat me. We don't look at them and necessarily go, they could hold all the secrets to how we live on a planet that might, just might be going to a post-antibiotic era, right? Think right. about that. And when I say that, that's actually a truth. But they were looking at basking sharks, these very slow-moving sharks. And I was reading a report today on basking sharks. That basking sharks are the sort of seen as the passive sharks of the ocean, and they are because they basically eat plankton. They have these massive wide mouths, and their uh, sort of older, more aggressive, annoying brother, the great white, comes shooting out, and all these things. And for the first time ever, they've caught these these basking sharks shooting out of the ocean, which is quite a big thing for if you're a basking shark. They're like, look, I could do that, and no one recognised me. <laughs> But the reason why I'm telling you this is because they also realize that on such a slow moving shark that there is very little bacterial growth and they couldn't understand that. And they started looking at the patterning on the skin of the shark and they realized that sharks have these things called dentricles, which is a patterning that allows them to be more efficient when they swim through the water, which I think a few years ago, Speedo and Michael Phelps took and they sort of repatterned on his suit and he was going to race a great white. I don't know what happened to that, but hopefully he got eaten. He would be one of those statistics where we'd be like, yes, got eaten. Smug Michael in his Speedo suit, swimming really fast. Not fast enough. <laughs> but they basically realized that this patterning is a sort of creates a sort of an awkward shape for the bacteria and it just doesn't like to grow there. And so somebody's taking that shape and 
has applied it to surfaces where there's high bacterial content, like a hospital you know, on a hospital floor, on a table, on a car handle, on a mobile phone, credit card, and started to apply this. So just by looking at sharks and actually paying attention, being curious to them, rather than just based in fear, replacing our fear with curiosity, we've now learned that sharks have this incredible patterning that is antibacterial. And as I said, in a world that is possibly moving towards a post-antibiotic as we know it world, mm -hmm. in terms of the, the current strains we have available to us, this is kind of exciting. But yet we're still like, that thing's gonna eat me, I don't really care if it dies or disappears. So mm -hmm. our brain hasn't quite caught up yet, I don't think, with the effects of our humanity on, this, on, on, on the planet, right? We're still at a very evolutionary basic kind of mindset, yet we dress ourselves up mm -hmm. to sort of appear differently, right? So you think that's where apathy comes from? I think apathy comes from, I would say everybody's empathetic, but then after a while that empathy, that empathy does turn into apathy because mm -hmm. th there's a relentless stream of content that is basically grounded in loss mm -hmm. and fear and negativity. And so and scarcity and scarcity. And so what happens is you you sort of sit there and you're like, OK, I've got this idea and I, you know, I like that and I can associate myself with that. And I'm going to try and do something about that. And then you you jump into that thing, whatever it might be. And then, you know, you're like, OK, we're making headway. And then you see like 10 other things just flow in, you know, and you're like, God, I didn't know about that and this and that. And, and I think what happens is after a while, if you don't see the end line, if we're not just ticking things off you start to kind of feel a little bit overwhelmed. You're like, well, I gave my money once or three times. I went to five charity events or I went on to the website and signed a petition and it's still happening. And so I think what happens is we start to then, we retreat, we become isolated and we feel we're not part of anything. And that's ultimately, I think that this is, this is part of, I would say the sort of the thing that I'm noticing a lot more is that the way that we, everything is geared to make us consume. Right, mm -hmm. So everything is geared to make us take on, whether it's the content we're watching is really to sell us a car or a, a cup of coffee or whatever it is. And so we've, we've turned ourselves just into these consumers. We've lost sight of the fact that we're citizens. And because of our consumptive habit, we approach these you know, serious issues with the same type of consumption. Mm -hmm. And that I think is why we're seeing only, we're seeing movements only be moments. We're seeing these movements come in and we attack it like a consumptive habit. We go, oh, yeah, I get my little fix. And then when it doesn't solve because it's a really deep-rooted problem that's gone on and on and on, gender inequality has gone on for millennia. Mm -hmm. The number one threat to anything on this planet has been man since day one, right? And we still act surprised. Like, men, biggest problem since day one. <laughs> since we created fire, we've been using it to be ourselves ever since, Right. And so what happens is these massively complex problems are being presented to us through the same consumerist lens that we view everything now. And so when it doesn't get solved within eight seconds or less, I'm out. Right. I did my bit. I went online and I pressed like or I, whatever I did. And, and I want some return, but I'm not necessarily willing to realize that it's, it's a struggle and it takes time and it's hard work. And I think myself as somebody who's been trying to communicate environmentalism for you know over 20 years now that I failed I just haven't done a good job because really what I've become or what I have seen myself become is this sort of undertaker for the wilderness you know mm. I stand there and all I'm doing is talking about the demise and the decay of nature and and throwing out statistical 
losses of nature and really just documenting its loss not its opportunity and and i think that to me i think it's a balance between being a realist and also you know trying to create a sense of awe and wonder going back to that childlike state of curiosity i've never met a child who doesn't love nature mm -hmm. and i've never met an adult on an individual level i mean no one's ever like oh that dolphin deserved it super smug dolphin should have got caught in that <laughs> net or like you know what? i'm gonna right. cut this tree down Poof. yeah that felt good we all love nature but we're losing connection with it and as we lose connection with it, we lose our understanding of it. As we lose our understanding of it, we lose our respect of it. As we lose our respect of it, we, we don't have the capacity to then protect it. Mm -hmm. And we're spending less and less time in nature. Ironically, when you look at all the devices and the things that we're connecting to, some of the highest performing images or the most, I think it was Getty just did 400 million images across social platforms. And the number one image that came out for 2018 was individuals in nature doing something. Mm. So we crave it. We crave to be outside, but we create an image of it. And so we're either creating an image of it, which is one of bliss and, you know, someone doing something extraordinary. Or what I'm starting to see is this fear that comes across in the media around our relationship to nature. We're at war with nature somehow, right? It's mm -hmm. like labeling nature in terms of snowmageddon and a cyclone bomb. I mean, who would have even thought that you'd use the word bomb next to nature? But now it's it's seen as like a sort of an enemy. Mm -hmm. So we create these labels. Shark Week on National Geographic has become Shark Month. It's always about when animals attack. It's man versus nature. It's never man learning from nature. So we've created this mm -hmm. sort of sense of fear. We've created a sense of isolation. We've created a sense of negativity. Oh, and by the way, if you want to join up, it's also very expensive. Right. So that all these things combined make it a very hard sell. And I think I've started to realize that the only way to, for me anyway, to find a new direction is to try and just re-engage with the awe and magic that is nature. Nature is a magician, going back to that. And we all love magic. So, you know, when you look at an octopus and it can change color and, and fit into its surroundings, but yet it's colorblind. Mm. And we have no idea how it does that, but it does it. And we think that we're smarter than it. Actually, they just did a study the other day where they gave octopus are very solitary creatures and super, super, you know, they're kind of grumpy. They're very insular and they're very, they're very strong personalities, most conscious of all, very high level of consciousness. So some scientists decided they wouldn't give some octopus MDMA huh? to see what would happen. <laughs> <laughs> True story. And they did. And they gave them, they gave these octopus, you know, pharmaceutical grade under obviously the right conditions, no lasers or, you know, dodgy dance music attached to this one. But they, they basically gave them this. Gave them molly. Gave them, gave them some, yeah, gave them some molly. <laughs> and, and guess, and surprise, surprise, they, they wanted to hang out with each other and they became su super, super connected and social. And you may be asking at this point, well, duh, but why? But what it shows is that their nervous system reacts the same way as our nervous system reacts. Mm -hmm. And what this shows you is that we are all interconnected. We are nature and nature is us. As we lose our relationship to nature, we lose our relationship to ourselves. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I studied natural medicine. I have a degree in natural medicine. So I trained as a naturopath. And when you start to look at your body and you start to realize we are what we eat and we are what we breathe. And then you start to look at the planet and you start to think about the systems of the planet replicated in our body. So if you take the ocean currents of our planet, 
they are very similar to our cardiovascular system. And so as we start to see the ocean currents and the ocean conveyor belt slow down because of um, you know, warmer waters and more fresh waters running off the Greenland ice melt, you know, into the into the North Atlantic, and that's slowing down the the currents. We start to see the same thing happening in society. We see stagnation of our cardiovascular system. We start to see people with obesity, cholesterol, cardiovascular disorders. As we start to ruin our Amazon, and we start to cut down. I say start to as we continue to basically completely destroy the lungs of our planet. We see the same thing happening in our own societies, in our own breathing mm-hmm. systems. We see more respiratory disorders. We see more people with asthma, more people with allergies, and and more people are dying now because of pollution. Like that's a legitimate thing. It's like you die because of pollution because you cannot breathe clean air anymore, which we're all affected by. Nobody's immune to that. As we look at what we've done to the soil in our planet, as we've gone massive, you know, since 10,000 years ago, which was one of the major epochs in humanity's evolution, the agricultural revolution, we have basically figured out a way in which we can try and manipulate and sterilize nature to do what we want. And as we've done that with massive agribusiness, and we've seen the stripping of our topsoil and the, basically all the nutrients come out, you could say that our gut, flora and fauna, isn't the equivalent of that. And now we're seeing ourselves sterilized in our stomachs, not able to digest food, not able to process it. Then we see irritable bowel syndrome, we see Crohn's disease, we see people coming out with all more and more discomfort and saying, I don't know why I can't eat this anymore, I can't do that. You know, And, and we realize that as we destroy nature, we basically destroy ourselves. Mm-hmm. So our ability to live on this planet is ultimately hinging on our ability to recognize that. And how do we do that? We have to have more empathy and compassion, and we have to stop creating narratives of war mm. against nature, you know? And I think that's a very big challenge because I think you've got to think that everything that has driven the, the nature destruction is based on consumerism. The shirt I'm wearing, the food I'm eating, the, mm-hmm. you know, everything, the oil that flew me here. All of those things are natural resources, and we've offset that cost, that true cost, mm-hmm. to make things cheaper and faster and more disposable so that we can create a, an arbitrary concept of wealth, which right. we've done at a, at a country level, and we've based it on things called GDP. I would say GDP is a grossly deceptive position. <laughs> I mean, if you were actually to take defense spending out of GDP, right, and it's called defense spending, but weapons of war out of GDP, and you were to replace it and and put different indicators in around nature. So when you chop trees down, that shouldn't be a positive, which it currently is. If you pollute a river and have to clean it up, that's a positive. If more people go and imprisoned, then it's seen as a positive because you're building structures to hold people. That doesn't show you really what's going on in mm-hmm. society. And so I think we need to kind of take that military thinking complex out of GDP and we need to start putting in nature and starting to realize mm-hmm. that actually we need clean air. It should be a human right. We need access to clean, unchemical, processed food. That should be a human right. Same for water. Should be a human right. Like I was thinking the other day, you know, you go into a restaurant. Someone's like, "Hey, would you like a fizzy or flat? What would you like?" And you're like, "I don't know." Don't know. And you know, and you're thinking, you're "Like Jesus, look how lucky we are. We get to choose between fizzy or flat water." But there's billions of people who don't have access to any kind of water, and we we are like, "Well, I don't even know. I have one of each." We've all done that. I'll, I'll fizzy, then I'll switch. And anyway, that's my rant. I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a sip of my my water, London Thames water. 
let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Hang tight, we'll be right back. I still remember my first Mother's Day. I was exhausted, for sure, but mostly still in awe that we now had this growing little person in our family who we loved in a way that I hadn't fully imagined and who was redefining for us every day what it could mean to be a family. There's probably no feeling like becoming a mom for the first time, but every Mother's Day since has still felt pretty sweet to me. I also just like that we have a day on the calendar that provides a reason to thank any and all of the women in our lives who have supported us, nurtured us, and been a mother figure of sorts when we've needed it. If you're planning on giving a gift to any of those women in your life this Mother's Day, you might have already hit up the Mother's Day gift guides on Goop. If you're still looking, I feel you. If you're having a hard time remembering when Mother's Day is this year, it's May 12th. And... If you want to do something special this Mother's Day, you can check out the story we just did in collaboration with Swarovski and some of our favorite new moms. The story was actually about how first-time moms mark the occasion for themselves, and it got an upgrade with a new collection of jewelry and accessories that Swarovski launched time to Mother's Day. The collection includes a range of styles, from somewhat minimalist lines to more intricately detailed and feminine designs. A highlight of the launch is the Sunshine line, which includes stackable ring sets and oversized studs and polished rose gold and silver tones. As you might guess from the name, the hero of this line is a pendant necklace in the shape of a striking sun. To check out all the pieces in Swarovski's Mother's Day collection, visit a local Swarovski store or head to Swarovski.com. For a while now, my skincare obsession has been Goop Glow. It's our morning skin super powder that's made with six potent antioxidants. You just mix it into water and drink. It tastes like oranges and lemon verbena. I drink Goop Glow every day and I swear by it. But the Goop Glow collection is growing, so now I have another obsession. This one is a weekly thing. It's called Goop Glow Glycolic Peel. If you are remotely as into exfoliating as I am, I think you're gonna be curious about this. Goop Glow Glycolic Peel was inspired by a chemical peel that I used to get from my dermatologist. It would completely transform my skin. My team at Goop developed a new pad that contains a whopping 15% glycolic acid for intense exfoliating. Oh, and we ran clinical tests on these too to prove that it works. One side of the pad is really soft. I use it on my face and wait for the tingling feeling to come. 
The other side of the pad is more like a gauze texture, which I like for my neck, chest, and shoulders. After I use the Goop Glow Glycolic Peel, I head to bed. When I wake up in the morning, I can completely see the difference. Fresher, softer, smoother, glowy skin. It is extremely satisfying. If you wanna try Goop Glow Glycolic Peel, and I know you do, head to goop.com slash glowpeelpodcast. And if you order one box of the Glow Peel, we'll include a five pack of Goop Glow Morning Skin Super Powder on us. Just enter promo code GLOWPEEL. That's goop.com slash podcast. Order one box of the Goop Peel. Enter promo code G-L-O-W-P-E-E-L and we'll get you a five pack of Goop Glow on us as well. Okay, let's hear more from David DeRothschild. I think you're right about the apathy. I think it's overwhelming. I think it's panic-inducing, particularly for parents. Are you hopeless? And if not, Am I hopeless? what's the path? Like, <laughs> how are we going to write this shit? I'm definitely pretty hopeless at a lot of things, like surfing. I'm pretty hopeless at that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of hopelessness in me. I really do. Um, as you get older, you realize, God, what was I thinking? I'm an optimistic pessimist. Mm-hmm. I think the systems have to change dramatically, and I think we're myself included. I don't, I don't exclude myself and sit in any special little seat, saying oh, I'm perfect. I'm not at all. I sit here and I have one side of my brain that's full of information, and uh, you know, is is constantly thinking in, about this, and probably obsessively so. And then I know the consequences of my actions, yet I still take them. Mm-hmm. I still fly. I still want a nice bottle of wine from somewhere in the world that's not near me. I still want a piece of cheese from somewhere in the world that's not near me. Right. You know, I'm sure there's some vegans out there screaming right now going, cheese, he said cheese. I don't like him anymore. I'm taking, I'm not <laughs> following him anymore. You know what I mean? Okay, nut cheese, whatever. Cashew cheese. Cashew cheese. I mean, think about, by the way, but cashew nuts are super poisonous. Yeah. And nuts were generally used by farmers to pull poison, to pull out of the, out of the toxins out of the soil. So, huh, eat your nut cheese and get poisoned. No, don't do that. Don't eat, I don't, I'm not, I don't have anything against nut cheese. It's just when you, when you take alternative foods and give them stupid names, that's when I get really upset. Like, um, who thought Satan was a good idea for something? I don't know. Well, who was thinking that one? Oh, let's have a piece of Satan. That just sounds... Like, I mean, I'm not a religious man, but that would seem a bit dark. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What are you having tonight? I'm having a Satan burger. <laughs> <laughs> it's bizarre. Just call it like the r- rubber band burger or something. Because they always say it's like a rubber band. It's basically an excuse for condiments. Um, but I am optimistic in human potential. I think human potential is extraordinary when given the right opportunities and the right conditions to flourish. And I think we ultimately, we're not creating that environment. There's there's a lot of fear right now, and yeah. that's the thing that really, more than anything, is that there's this divisiveness that is a sickness. It's like flu going around the world, where people are becoming more rigid, creating more dislike for other cultures, yeah. uh, for other genders, for other ways of life. And I think, as a you know middle of the road liberal, but because I believe in, you know what I mean, like I, yeah. I I think we've got we've got to we've got to do something about it. We've got to because. The baddies always win. You know, they mm-hmm. keep on organizing because they got simple messages. And those messages, are, you know, we're sitting here in our little liberal towers going, yeah, well, we should, can't offend those people. We can't do this. And what well, this can't happen. This won't happen. And it's happening. Right. And we're seeing massive, massive amounts of 
fragmentation and fear and and that doesn't that doesn't unlock human potential mm-hmm. that basically creates division and and it creates more anger and and that anger if not able to be expressed and validated turns into violence and we're seeing that now in America i mean that's the number one problem is like why aren't we teaching emotional, emotional intelligence in school yeah that should be fundamental because we're teaching kids for a world we're teaching them stuff today for a world we have no idea what it's going to look like mm-hmm. 10 years ago the iphone came out you know 10 years ago and look how much that's changed you know i went to i, I finished with the, a degree in computer science in 99 no one said to me 6 years later there's going to be this phone it's going to change the world and do that you know these were top professors and all these people and you sit there and you're like you know they were still talking about desktops and could we get desktops into people's houses and mobile phones were still you know oh people will chat on phones no one's talking about apps no one's talking about all these new diagnostic tools or tracking tools no one was talking about the sort of the really cultural shift that's happened around mobility and devices mm-hmm. so i don't know what a 11 year old is learning today that will be relevant for them in 20 years time but one thing is for sure i'm pretty sure even if we're living in a world of ai and robots and all the other things the one missing ingredient is going to be emotional intelligence i'm still going to need to know how to have a conversation with you express my point of view validate your point of view self motivate teamwork i'm still going to need to know some fundamentals of just being a human and how to coexist on spaceship earth and i think we're missing that and i think what starts to happen is because we're getting divisiveness because we've got so much content everyone's got these streams of information coming at them and they're not sure how to necessarily understand it and assimilate it and you know we're spending you know I was looking at statistics it's like i think the philippines are up there or indonesia basically philippines indonesia we're, we're looking at 17 hours a day average time online i think in the us it's about 6 hours a day mm-hmm. uh, online for kids just on devices you know in some places it's even higher it's just average we're spending less time outside we spend about 23 hours a day inside of something right mm-hmm. an hour a day and we go no I'm more than that and maybe if you live in a sunny place and you get out but even if you think about it you go maybe you walk from your car to a, you know your office or maybe you ride a bike or maybe you stand outside at lunch for 20 minutes and then you go back inside we're we're more and more internal we're more and more inside we're more and more facing in grabbing all this information it's not necessarily making us feel well because we don't know how to process it mm-hmm. and then we outburst it in some way right through violence or hate sometimes it's compassion and love i wish it was more of that i wish we had more empathy for each other and more empathy for diversity and more empathy for nature and that's the number one thing in nature diversity mm-hmm. right every single player in nature no organism exists in isolation every player plays a role and we somehow have because we've attached our identity to things that don't have any soul or don't have any sense of purpose really i mean we've attached our identity a lot of the time just to money it has no nothing more than an exchange and what it's a very linear exchange and so we need to go back and embrace and learn from nature look at diversity in nature biodiversity is what makes it so rich and so resilient not if everyone was acting alone nature wouldn't have been around for 4.5 mm-hmm. billion years you know so i think there's a lot to learn if there was one two three things because i think that there's like a big question about like what can the individual do is this a government and a corporate problem that needs to be solved like what can we 
how much of this can we carry? I think a, a fair amount. But what would you, what are your asks? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we need to replace fear with curiosity. And I say that because I think curiosity is a great driver of change. I just say, you know, dreams are the breeding grounds. I, I, this is kind of the thing called the equation of curiosity. It's like dreams are the breeding grounds for adventures. Adventures create stories and stories inspire more dreams, right? Mm-hmm. And so by, we push everything through by asking a question. So what does a better world look like? And you think about it and you think about it and then all of a sudden you share it with your friend and mm-hmm. you say, hey, I've got this idea. I want to start this thing or do something. Your adventure begins. And then that adventure generates stories that others can look at now. Mm-hmm. And that inspiration then goes on and feeds the cycle of change. So you don't look at that if you're full of fear or full of hate or you're not feeling good about yourself. So I'd say the first thing is to replace that fear and fundamentally underpin it with curiosity. Be more curious, ask more questions, um, not being afraid to be wrong. Because if we're not afraid to be wrong, we're never going to find another way. You know, we've got to try and mm-hmm. unpick that. I think we're at a tipping point as well in terms of just our obsession with growth. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to look at that very seriously. We've created this pseudoscience, which is called our economy. Economics are seen as scientists, you know, a professor and very super smart at engineering. And we've engineered ourselves into a mess where we basically say that a company is not successful unless it is quarterly growth and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. I've never seen anything do that in nature. Just keep mm-hmm. on growing and growing and growing. Something has to give. So we have to change companies and the way that we view companies and the way that they are responsible in their own ecosystem and move them from being a company back to a community. Businesses have a role to play more than just making profit. And that's what we we look at businesses and we go, you're a successful business if you make as much profit at all cost. Mm-hmm. That narrative has to change. And we as individuals can do that by removing ourselves from just being seen as consumers, but seeing ourselves as citizens and reclaiming that word. You know, mm-hmm. whenever you hear the spectrum now, it's like government, business and consumers. If we're just there to just buy stuff, then we're missing the whole point of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. What it means to be human is an exchange that's beyond just a a, a linear payment and process. It's looking at someone in the eyes and saying, I understand your point of view and I want to work with you or I understand how you're feeling and I want to work with you to to figure something out and make it better for both of us, right? And because at at the underpinning of it all is like environmentalism is ultimately saying we want to breathe clean air. We want to have access to clean food. We want to have clean water. We want to have respect for other species. It's not like a horrible ask, is it, at the end of the day? And, and so what we've done is we put consumerism and profit and profit and profit and greed first. And I think this is going to be one of the most interesting challenges of our time is how we look at companies and can change them into communities, how a company can operate, but not operate at gross profit at all costs. I still think these worlds are very divided. I think we still have, yes, we've got some great social enterprises and we've seen some really in- encouraging initiatives happen. But I think what happens is when you look at a company, it's self-interest, right? I'm buying something that's my self-interest or if you're investing in a company or you're buying stocks, it's all about that company doing well. It's all about your own self-interest. And you look at charity and it's an expanded self-interest, the idea that that would be doing something bigger than and for others and a a dream that's not only for oneself. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in how we can close these two worlds. I think that becomes really interesting, how we can galvanize some of the best bits of both of those worlds because I think what happens is just writing a check to a cause or just adding a signature in isolation after a while is where apathy sinks in and 
I think we we now unfortunately believe in brands more than we believe in politicians. We buy into individuals as brands. So what are the narratives that these individuals and these these brands are saying to us? Mm-hmm. And when you start to scratch beneath the surface, a lot of it doesn't add up, mm. right? Because it's built on one thing, making profit again. So that's not to say that there's something wrong with that, but why can't we have profit with purpose? Mm. Why can't we have impact around the way that we organizing consume because we're not going to stop consumerism right we all want stuff but maybe with the value exchange and the way i get stuff could change and imagine if you had a world where you could volunteer and say listen i can't afford that gucci handbag right but i'll tell you what i'll do is i'll go spend three or four days looking after elderly in my community and that earns me the right to get something like that mm-hmm. imagine if we could just change the dynamics of how you would buy something you know, it would change the nation overnight. You would start to see people go, oh, okay, cool, I'll, I'll do that. I've always thought about that, you know, in the capacity, because the margins inside of businesses are so big, right? There's room now for these businesses to change the way that they operate to have a fundamentally, I think, positive impact. We're not gonna just lose the, the, the trade. We've done that since day one. So we've got to just change the way, the emphasis of what it's used for. And right now it's used to make a few rich people richer. Mm-hmm. And so how do we stop that that notion and make, and, and provide the service, but give it out to, to many? And I think that's a really big challenge of our time because I think we're running a race and that race is, is this sort of voracious appetite for things new and more. And that is because of the weight of what it means to operate as a business. And that affects everything. So businesses will come rushing in and say, I want, we need to make more, 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 more. And governments say, okay, well, that's going to be good, right? For my community, if you do that. And it's like, yeah, it is, but you can't tax us and you can't do this. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's short-termism right. as well as that. And it all is just starting to come into this, I think this melting pot that's starting to unravel so we have to find alternative ways this we're coming back to the very beginning i said we've got to unlearn so many things because i think we've just learned a, a story the only absolute in anything is nature everything else is a storied is something that might even be in a myth but you know we could have started as a joke so like, we've got to rally around this idea and and it becomes memorialized in society and culture over time mm-hmm. but we don't question it we don't say hang on why was that like that Mm-hmm. You know, we just accept it because we don't want to cause a fuss or we don't want to ask that question. Thanks for joining my conversation with David. I can't wait to follow his next adventure. In the meantime, you can check out his brand at thelostexplorer.com. And now I'm going to toss it over to GP for a quick round of Ask Me Anything. Best advice for a newlywed. I'm getting married in May, says Sierra. I suppose my best advice would be that it's really important to know that the wedding is just the beginning of your relationship to somebody and that in that kind of commitment lies amazing opportunity for growth. And I had a therapist once that said to me that an intimate relationship is just a study in everything that's wrong with you which I really took to heart because I think in marriages we tend to blame our spouse or go quickly into a victim consciousness. And I think if we can remember that 
every time we feel friction, that we're responsible for our side of the street and what can we do to heal that part of ourselves that's triggered and how can we show up for our partner in a way that's more expansive and show up for the relationship in a way that's more productive, the better. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll be back next week with me on Tuesday and Thursday. In the meantime, check out goop.com slash the podcast for more.